So I'm going to talk about praying for the lost, and um, some of this will be um, review for some of you, and some of it might be new, and some of it's going to hit different angles, and um, just kind of to bring encouragement as, as you guys are talking about reaching the lost and building community and, and um, praying for the lost. Um, for, for those of you that don't know me or you just forget, it's, this, my name is Jeff, that's my wife Bethany. She was at this church when you were like 10, 12. This is where her family got filled with the Spirit and changed and transformed. And, and, um, and then we met or got married almost 11 years ago. And so I, I connected to this church then. And it's always been like a second home because we live in South Dakota. And so really appreciate you as a people and just the values and just the presence that you steward here. And God is is doing something. And so uh, my wife and I lead a, a house of prayer ministry in South Dakota, and we're open 25 to 30 hours a week. Um, some of that is live prayer, and some of it's just a room like this where we have worship going on, and we have people coming in and out just to, to um, pray and worship and read their Bibles. And um, just to be honest, we're really small. <laughs> you know, IHOP is 24-7, and it's, it's hundreds or thousands of people engaging at different times. And global web stream where people from China and Asia and Russia can watch. And that's amazing. But for a lot of places, it's five people. It's 10 people. It's one person. And my dad has been a prayer person uh, since the 90s. And I know he was for years one of two or three people at daily prayer meetings. And some of you have been that and some of you are that. And others of you are going to be that. Um, but just the smallness, it's, it's okay um, and even we have a church as well, and it, it's really small. But what God is doing in this hour <clears throat> is he is gathering people together that want to sow into a prayer lifestyle. And when I say prayer, I mean intimacy with God, but also praying for things. He is gathering people that want to sow into a prayer lifestyle because the, the challenges and the outpouring of God's power are going to be so intense and collide that the two things that you need are a prayer life and depth of relationship with Jesus, and you need depth of relationship with one another. And God is getting the church ready as a vessel that is connected to one another and connected to him in intimacy and prayer, that, that we can steward his power and we can steward the shakings that are happening but are going to intensify in the nations. And so um, smallness isn't a reflection of anything right now. Smallness isn't a reflection of churches. Smallness isn't a, it's not a measurement of success in the church. And I think that is a challenge for me, honestly, as a leader to like, just challenge that lie. But even for our prayer lives, or when we talk about praying for something, we don't always know the timeline of answered prayers. And we can't gauge success by the answered prayers necessarily. And we can't gauge success about prayer by the size of the prayer meetings. And so for those of you that have done this for many, many years, you've been one of two people showing up to prayer gatherings or small groups. Um, we never can measure the success of something by the numbers. Um, if we did that, all small churches would shut down and there would only be mega churches. Um, but I, I think the Lord looks at, yeah, looks at many churches, and I have friends that have larger churches, um, and I dialogue with them about, you know, how are you determining what success is in your ministry? 
Because I think you can have bigger ministries and God's presence isn't really there. And there's value systems that aren't really there that are biblical. Anyway, that prayer is the foundational thing that God wants to root us in and ground us in. And I think even like for myself, I've been, I've been um, in full-time prayer. I've been pursuing it. I've been a prayer guy for almost 20 years. And um, I think the Lord wants to challenge us wherever we're at because I know there's many prayer people in here, is he has way more for us to experience in friendship with him in the place of prayer. And no matter how experienced we are, God wants to give us more grace, and he wants to give us more of his presence in the place of prayer and in the place of intercession. And so I think he's going to blow the roof off of where we think prayer is. <laughs> you know, I've been in awesome prayer times, and I've had awesome seasons in prayer and I feel like God is saying, you don't even know where I'm going to take this. Um, some of you might not know this passage, but it's Isaiah 56, 7. It's a, it's a future promise when Jesus is back on the earth, but it says that God is going to make his house a house of prayer, and he's going to make everybody joyful in the house of prayer. In the broken, the crippled, the lame, the outcast, he's going to bring into the house of prayer and he's going to make them joyful in the house of prayer. That is maybe the opposite of what it is currently. You know, and a lot of prayer times, or when we think of prayer, there's connotations of like being boring, or just the labor of it, and just the, the frustrations with it. But God wants to make prayer uh, the place where he imparts joy to his people, and where he imparts physical healing to people. Um, there is a prophetic guy that has since passed away. Uh, his name was Bob Jones, and um, he's had a lot of prophetic words in America, and uh, he had this, this dream or an open vision, and this was a prophecy about the future of the, of the church in America. He said there's coming a day when in the prayer meetings of America, there will be so much power in God's presence that people of all kinds of addictions and broken heart issues will walk into a prayer meeting and God's glory will break in upon their thoughts and emotions and completely deliver them in a prayer meeting. Um, and I know that happens, but that, that is where it's going on a more uh, normal basis. Uh, anyway, so my wife and I lead a small prayer ministry. We don't apologize for that, and we're just locking in, and God is saying the glory is going to increase in America, and the crisis is going to increase in America, and... I think most people would agree that there's shaking of some kind. Um, I think there's confusion on where's the source of all that. But um, God is saying, just grab on to prayer, grab on to intimacy, grab on to friendship with one another, and grow in depth with God and grow in depth with each other. And he is preparing us uh, for something dramatic that's around the corner. You know, I'm just going to reference Noah. You know, you guys know the story of Noah. <laughs> Noah is building this ark for a long time. It's like 120 years. And he looks like an idiot. Noah, you're not making any impact. Da-da-da-da. And Noah was preparing his family for a crisis that was coming. And he was preparing himself in a hidden place. And God, he's not saying to hide from the world, but he's saying in the secret place of your heart, I want you to prepare so that you become a vessel because I want to bring the lost in and I want you to be a steward of that. And I want to just say this boldly is that 
whatever value view, value view is in your personal lives, but also as a group, that's what you're going to multiply. And God wants to continue to restru- uh, refine and strengthen who you are in your DNA and how you interact as a church family. Because when the lost keep coming in, whatever you are as a church, that's what they're going to get. So whatever DNA you strengthen and refine and grow into together, that's what you're going to bring people into. And so I feel like that's, that's, that stirs my faith <laughs> in the, the, uh, the power of interacting and growing now is that God wants to multiply churches, but he wants to multiply a godly DNA. And I feel like there's a lot of multiplication movements in the earth, but I don't know what's being multiplied. I don't know what's being multiplied in different ministries. Is it people getting saved in shallow lifestyles where prayer is a foreign word, where fasting is a foreign word, where intimacy and joy with Jesus is a foreign word? And is it just, just get him into the kingdom enough to multiply and make more disciples. And Jesus is saying, guys, that what's coming around the corner, the the glory and the crisis, the shallow multiplication isn't going to work. And and my concern would be that shallow multiplication of getting people saved and multiplying them is that the DNA is getting passed on and on. And actually the crisis and the shaking that is happening and it's going to increase is going to shake the shallow multipliers and they're going to switch over with offense in their hearts against Jesus. Okay, I didn't mean to go off on all that stuff. So anyway, Caleb said I could. Okay, so we're talking about praying for the lost. And I'll walk you through the verses I have here. And then um, uh, you, can, you can know that you have some notes coming to you um, later. All right, so you guys are in a kingdom culture series, right? And um, Caleb talked about reaching the lost or just making disciples of the lost last week. So I want to just um, add in um, that the focus on praying for the lost. Number one, I want to talk about the role of prayer and worship in God's kingdom. Is when we talk about praying for the lost, um, it's, it's, it is the, it's the main way that we change anything. And I don't want to like just talk in religious rhetoric, okay? <laughs> Praying, there's like so many posters or like signs in our house that prayer changes everything. Prayer isn't just something that we do. Prayer is something that we are. And in the gospel, what Jesus has done, he's washed us from our sins, but then he's also raised us up and he's seated us with him on a throne around God's throne room. And so when we talk about prayer... We're actually stepping into our identity as intercessors or priests, and we're interacting with God on the behalf of other people. And so it's not just something we do, it's actually who we are, and we step into our place. So if you want to go with me to Ephesians 2, and I'll read it as well. Ephesians 2, verse 6. <clears throat> Prayer isn't something that we just do, it's who we are. And it's, it's our identity that we've received in Jesus Christ is that he's raised us up with Jesus and Jesus ascended into heaven and got to be on a throne uh, next to the Father. And through Jesus, we also get raised up and we're seated on a throne. Well, that sounds really nice and cute. (laughs) And that's where it's been in much of the church. That's nice and cute. And how how do we symbolize that? 
Jesus is saying, you're raised in heavenly places with me, and you're on a throne, and you're, you are not God, but you're eye to eye with the Father, and you're on a throne, and you have a crown, and you are a, uh, you are a U.S. senator before God's throne, and is one way to think of it. And you have a vote with God, and God says, I've made you a priest to stand before me in the throne room. Talk to me. Talk to me, and don't leave this place. That's what Jesus' blood has done. So Ephesians 2, 6 says this, and it's right in line with what the gospel has done for us. It says that he has raised us up together, and he has made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Heavenly places means, many times it means the throne room. And so when we talk about praying for the lost, it's not just a small thing that we do as a Christian it's actually getting a, re- a realization that God has raised us up and somehow, and this takes God's spirit to teach us, but somehow we, we actually have union with Jesus in the throne room of heaven. And so God says the most powerful thing you can do for the unbelievers in your lives or in the city is realize your position in that throne room and say, Abba, I'm asking you for their salvation. I'm asking you to move in power on them. I'm asking you to move in power on our city, on our towns in this area, on my siblings, on our kids, whatever it might be. And so praying for the lost is the most important way that we can actually engage in changing this, Um, that God has to do something. And so, again, I want to just emphasize that it's your identity. You know, you are a priest, or if you're a woman, you're a priestess, (laughs) probably is how it works. But you literally have access into that throne room. Raise your hand if that's a newer idea to you. You have access to a literal throne room in heaven. Okay? So in the book of Hebrews, it makes it quite clear there's a physical... I've never been there, so I don't know how to describe it. There's a literal physical building in heaven that's God's temple. And in Hebrews, it says that the blood of Jesus has made a way into that temple... And he's brought all of us in there. And it says that the blood of Jesus cleansed a way for us to go in there. And that's why Hebrews, I think it's 9 and 10, says it's a new and living way. And we actually have access into that place. It's not symbolic. You can go to Hebrews 9 and 10 for yourself. But that's, it's a real place. And even Romans 8 says that Jesus is in the throne room. And he's interceding for us. Jesus steps into his identity as a priest. Okay, interacting with God is the most powerful way to change hearts. Interacting with God is the most powerful way to change hearts. How many of you know um, people who don't know Jesus yet? Coworkers, neighbors, a loved one, me included. The most powerful way that we can change their hearts is by closing our eyes and by faith we enter in, and if I had a lot more time I get into what I think about the throne room. But we can close our eyes. And Colossians 3 says to set our minds on things above, where Jesus is. We close our eyes and we set our minds on the throne room. <clears throat> so I picture a throne room. And I close my eyes and I say, Abba, I'm asking for um, my loved one right now. I'm thinking of one of my, my family members. That you would save her soul, God. That you would open her eyes that she would know Jesus, that she would fully receive it, God, and that you would tear down all the blinders, all the hindrances in her life. 
God, I ask you to change her heart by your spirit. That's the most powerful thing I can do. And then after that, I overflow in that relationship and I serve and I'm sorry, I want to serve and love and discern those open doors on when to to, um, bring up the gospel or somehow bring Jesus into that conversation. Um, But praying is the most important thing. And I just, I'm not just saying religious words. Prayer is the most powerful thing, okay? Um, actually, those words with God are doing something. And I'll get into that in just a second. I think of um, praying for the lost um, in military terms. <clears throat> if you pray for um, the lost in your life, it's like you're using your Air Force in a military battle. Who wants an Air Force in a military battle? I'm not trying to say war is good or bad. I just, if you have an Air Force in a battle, you want to use that. You have the Air Force, and then you have the soldiers who can go on the, on, uh, the ground. You want the Air Force first, right? Because they can just multiply the power. If we don't pray or if prayer is minimal, we're saying, Air Force, just kind of stay on the ground. We're going in just with us soldiers. That's what we're doing. In the, the military contrast, there's like, that would be foolish, that would be foolish, and I, I just think of that with prayers like, um, I think, I don't know what percentage, it seems maybe more the majority is, let's get the foot soldiers in, and let's just tell the Air Force, the, the whole prayer life thing, to like be grounded for a while, um, but really, a military term is like, that's the opposite. We just let the Air Force of prayer go and just drop the bombs on the demonic kingdom and just break off the blinders, and then we go in on foot, and we love, and we serve, and we encourage uh, those around us with the gospel. <clears throat> okay, so we want the Air Force. Um, Ephesians 2.6, I already referenced this, says that we've been seated with Jesus in heavenly places. I'm going to reference the second verse quick before I move on to another point. Um, is Ephesians 3.10. I'm just going to read it. It's going to emphasize that God, God wants to display his power through the church, and he wants to display his power to um, the spiritual realm, and it's emphasizing prayer. Uh, Ephesians 3.10, it says, um, I'm just going to go there to read a little bit of context for you. Ephesians 3.10. It says, To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. I'll read it again. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. What he's saying is that through the gospel... God actually wants the church to display his power and his glory and his wisdom to principalities and powers. And I think it's mostly referencing the demonic kingdom in the spiritual realm, but it could be the angelic. He's saying, I want the church in the place of prayer to display my power to the principalities and powers in the spiritual realm. Any demons that have enthronements, um, that, that are enthroned in the spiritual realm, I want the church to rise up in the place of prayer 
And I want you through prayer and worship to actually display my glory and my power because you are seated in heavenly places. Next time you read through Ephesians, just note how many times it says in heavenly places. A lot, yeah. Okay, point number two. Okay, so point number one was this. We're, we're priests in Jesus' throne room. And our prayers are the most impactful thing we can do. <clears throat> it's not the only thing, but it's, it's the first thing. Point number two is that our words in prayer move angels and demons. Of course. Whenever I've done a teaching like this, though, it's not, of course. <laughs> I, was, I was doing, I've done it different times and people are like, Wait. Like when I pray, demons move? Yeah. And angels move. And they get fired up. Oh, my goodness. I never th- thought about that for very long. Um, and honestly, when I read them, like, I get fired up too. <clears throat> Our words move angels and demons. When we interact with God in prayer, and I'll just bring it in context to the, the lost, when we're interacting with God in prayer and we're talking to him, about our city or our loved ones, our, our coworkers. Um, there are demons that hate people, and in the spiritual realm, they can blind people's eyes and their hearts from receiving the truth. And so when we're praying, God is actually releasing angels to people, and they are pushing back demons that are blinding their hearts. And I don't know how this works in God's sovereignty but he has clear designations for our role is that when we pray, he is releasing more power and more and more angels to push back any demonic influence that people may have. And that happens as we're praying. It happens as we serve and as we encourage and bless them as well. But the first place is when we're praying um, and interacting with God on their behalf. Yeah. So I think of it this way. I think of it this way that whatever happens in the spiritual realm, and if that word is doesn't make sense to you, whatever happens with angels and demons in the invisible place on the earth, whatever happens there determines what happens on the earth and what we can see. All right? So there's angels and demons, and when whatever they're doing determines what um, is happening on the earth with decisions, uh, with just different things. I don't want to go to get into a ton, I guess, but um, just with that idea in mind or that principle is that when we pray, we're engaging with the spiritual realm and we're pushing back the demonic influence on people's hearts and minds and on situations. And when we push that back, that releases clarity on people to make clear decisions. Um, and it's still up to them to decide, but there's a supernatural realm happening around every single one of us, and, um, and as believers, we're not, uh, we still have influences in our lives, and that's why for us, we need to pray for ourselves and engage in the Word, because the enemy wants to snare us in certain things as well, and so um, that it's also a principle in our lives. All right. Ephesians 6.12, another Ephesians passage. It says we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. You're not wrestling against a loved one for their salvation. You're not wrestling against a coworker, a neighbor, uh, 
a city official, a national official. You're not wrestling against them. And this has been the challenge the last couple of years is there's so much wrestling on Facebook, face-to-face, all kinds of stuff, and there's so much anger. And, and I think what happens is we try to wrestle with each other and get in arguments over what we believe is truth. And what can happen is if we're not wrestling in the place of prayer first, we come in with our human zeal into conversations, and it turns into anger and broken relationships. And we're getting mad at a person, and the, Lord's get, the Lord would say, get mad at the demon also. And, and be aware of yourself, that you might have some logs in your own eye <laughs> in the conversation. Um, just be aware that there's a spiritual realm also, and, and that when you're um, upset about an issue, um, it doesn't mean that they're demonic. We have to be aware of like what, what we believe, um, but that we have, to, we have to push back the influence um, over people's lives, and that happens in the place of prayer. And that, that there's grace for people that we're interacting with, knowing that in the place of prayer, we can help drive back any demonic influence. I don't know if I can clarify something, because I, I feel like every one of us, when we're talking to someone who disagrees with us, we would want to automatically think they have the demonic influence. And I want to just be like really sober and go, with unbelievers, they're going to have some demonic influence we want to break off. When I'm talking to friends or family or something and we disagree on something, and there's big somethings right, right now in America, that I want to be cautious and I'm not saying that someone who disagrees with us has a demonic influence. I had this situation, and it's a loved one, still praying for them, was like really praying for their salvation, um, and it's in regards to the verse I'm going to reference next, but was really praying for the salvation, saying, God, break the blinders off their eyes, da-da-da. And it had been maybe two, three years of, like, really focused in on this person's salvation. And, um, like, just, like, how do I build a relationship with them to, to bring truth and encouragement? And um, the person actually came, and, and uh, um, it's within my family's sphere, so it's not weird. But they came to where I was in my home, in my town, and we actually went, like, on a camping trip together. It's like, awesome, this is a great chance to build a relationship. And we, we slept in the tent and then um, got up the next morning. And they're like, I had this really weird dream last night. And in the dream, uh, this person, uh, it's a family member, we were in a, a big building together, like an office building. But every single wall in the whole building was glass. And they all had dr- uh, blinders like that that were closed. And in the dream, this person was in the middle of this room, so like this, but it's all windows. And I was running around the room, ripping off the blinders from all the windows. And the light was just shining in. And I'm like, this makes so much sense to me. (laughs) And they're like, I have no idea what that means. And I'm like, this is so encouraging to me that you just had that dream. And I just didn't reference, I like had been praying that language for like two or three years. And it's from 2 Corinthians 4. It says, but even if our gospel is veiled, meaning something is covering, <clears throat> it's veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded. And the God of this age is the demonic kingdom. And so there's a, a, a demonic blinding on hearts um, that people have to bypass, that I had to bypass when I got saved. And there is a demonic blinding 
to, to change the message of the gospel, to blind people, to make their hearts dull or hard from hearing the truth and the, and the grace and the love of Jesus and the gospel. And, um, and I've been praying that language for this loved one. And they had a dream that like physically described blinders being broken down and light flooding in. Um, cause in the next couple of verses, it says for God declares a light of the knowledge of Jesus into our hearts. He shines like light into our hearts. And so what we, when we're praying, um, it's not like little wimpy prayers. We're actually breaking off demonic blinders off of people and by our prayers. And it's so weak. It's so simple, but the enemy wants to come in and say, it's so weak and it's so simple. Don't do it so much, <laughs> you know, because it's actually pushing back. I believe like, like real beings are getting pushed off of people's backs, myself included. And it's giving that fresh air and atmosphere to actually hear the truth of Jesus. And I had the same experience in college where I got saved and had a whole bunch of stuff broken off me. So, um, Okay, so that's point number two is our words move angels and demons. Point number three is that prayer connects our heart. Prayer connects us to God's heart in friendship. And this is one part that I love that sometimes gets missed in the topic of prayer because we want to be like prayer warriors. God's like, yes, but mix that in with the sonship and being a daughter and being a bride. And so God wants friendship. And so he goes, I'm going to make a system in the earth to where my, the people that I love get to interact with me to get things done. I don't want the work itself of sharing the gospel to get in the way of my friendship with my people. And so God wants friendship with us. And what happens is when we, when we start interacting with him as a friend around um, the topic of the lost people in our lives, God goes, oh, I just love the sound of your voice. This is just amazing. You know, he's not like, let's go change the world. He is, but he wants to do it in partnership with us. And so when we're interacting with him, I just imagine him to be going, ah, this is so good. Just keep singing that song to me. Keep singing that prayer to me. Keep whispering. Keep crying to me. I just love it. You don't have to twist my arm. You don't have to prove how desperate you are for their salvation. I'm the one that's trying to get you awakened to my passion for them. Just keep talking. I love it. Uh, I think it's in Song of Solomon 2. Um, Jesus says, I love your face. Your face is beautiful and your voice is lovely to me. You know, and sometimes in the prayer warrior world, there's like this get down in faith and grittiness and just keep laboring. And that's absolutely true. But it's true from the foundation of God is a husband and a father who's so happy, so joyful, so powerful. He's like, it doesn't take that much. Just come love on me and talk to me, and I will fill you with my zeal for those people. Um, but you don't have to prove anything to me. You don't have to twist my arm to get me to move. I'm trying to get you to move. <laughs> and I'm just wanting you to come into the joyful house of prayer, interact with a joyful God to bring people into the joy of God. And so prayer, even intercession for the lost, and I've had moments like many of you where it's been weeping or even my body was like uh, shaking and groaning when I was praying as God's spirit was like resting on me. And it was amazing. Just it was friendship with him. Um, but I want to just like bring the friendship element or highlight that aspect when we talk about praying for the lost or praying for something. Because God wants to interact with us. 
And so practically, here's what happens. Um, and I know I'm just repeating this for a lot of you, but just going to say it anyway. When we're interacting with God on behalf of the lost, it moves his heart. He's going, oh, I just love when you talk to me. I love it. Say their name again. Say their name again to me. I love your voice. I love your heart. And it's in the place of prayer that he can, he can heal us and strengthen us and all those things. But he wants the honest conversation. And that's what the Psalms are. It's like David just saying, ah, you know, and God just like speaks into his heart. Uh, one of the Psalms, I think it's, I don't know if it's Psalm 56, but I think it's David writing it. And it says, David, I've kept your tears in a bottle. You know, and a lot of times tears are like painful. They're not like, you know, happy tears is what we say to kids. They're happy tears. A lot of tears are like, I'm sad. I'm confused. I'm perplexed. I don't know what to do. Even Paul the Apostle, I think it's 2 Corinthians 4, he said, I'm perplexed, but not something else. Like there's four words. He says, I'm perplexed. I'm challenged. I'm downcast, but I'm not destroyed. But I'm not whatever. So even Paul, he had perplexed, like he was challenged or confused in different spots or moments. And so God wants us just to bring all that stuff to him and say, your voice is lovely. Your, your complaints and all that stuff, like I can take it and I will interact with you in that place. He's so gentle and so kind. One of my friends says this, God doesn't want pretty prayers. Or how does he say it? He likes ugly prayers, yeah. <clears throat> Prayer connects us to God's heart. So practically is what I was saying is when we're praying, this happens to me, so I'm just going to say it for all of us. When, when we're praying for someone's salvation, or maybe, just, maybe it's a general prayer for, for our city, God, we ask you that you would save them, that you bring them in. What's happening is in those moments of actually interacting with him, his thoughts are starting to come into our thoughts. And his emotions are starting to come into our emotions. And his ideas and his strategies and his hope and his courage are coming into us. In those moments of interacting, that's where we're like, we're getting recharged. But God as a person is actually joining himself to us. And we get to experience his thoughts and his emotions and his compassion and his love and even his thoughts about them that are, prophesy, uh, that are prophecy, it's when we're interacting with him that he's depositing those things in us. Not that you're a robot and he's like, boom, you know, sending the mail to you. As a, as a husband to a bride, as a father to a child, he is communicating to you for the sake of friendship, and then he's fueling you or empowering you for that person. You will only get love for the unbelievers around you if you're praying and interacting with God. God wants to fill you with his love for them as you pray to him. And so that's where the joy is. That's where the intimacy is. That's where the compassion and the mercy come is when we talk to God. Okay, so right now I feel like I'm supposed to stop and um, just throw this out there. Whoever you're mad at <laughs> and your friends, family, and your work sphere, you're mad about some decisions that people make, or you're mad about someone else's belief systems, um, the Lord wants you to pray for that person so that you can get his heart for them. Because if you're mad at them, that's probably a sign that you're operating out of your own heart, and you've not gotten God's heart for that person. 
And God is a God of mercy. So I want to just put that out there. If you're like, oh, that sibling or that spouse, <laughs> hopefully you only have one spouse, that coworker, <laughs> that neighbor, they believe this or they're making that decision. And I'm just angry. And um, maybe you're calling it righteous anger and it might not be. <laughs> the Lord wants to say, just talk to me about them and get mercy and get compassion and get patience. And in the New Testament, it says long suffering. Ugh, not a fun word. But in Colossians 1, it says long-suffering with joy. You know, how long was Jesus patient with me? I grew up in an amazing house. My parents are awesome. My parents are awesome. I was addicted to all kinds of stuff for 20 years, and then I partied in college. And then finally, my freshman year of college, after partying, I quit that stuff, I get saved. Then I get in a bad relationship, and I keep sinning. And then a year later, that finally breaks up, and I go, Jesus, I'm yours. 21 years later, amazing family, amazing circumstances. Thank you for being long-suffering. <laughs> and you know what? The good news is he didn't make me wait 10 years to pay all that stuff back. He goes, right now, friendship with me. Right now, access to me. Right now, step into your calling. And I'll tell you this as a testimony. I was like 20 and a half. In one year, I was praying every night for my campus for revival. I had made new friends. I was going deep in the word. I felt called to go to Bible school, and I came out of addictions and depression and tormenting thoughts. In one year, from coming into the kingdom in that swirl of depression and sin, in one year later, I was like actually a leader on my campus, praying every night around my campus at midnight with a shofar, <laughs> getting stirred up to like hear his voice and do healings, and like getting a vision for like for doing prayer in like a really serious way. And my, my dad was just starting to mentor me, but I had no clue besides the Bible. And I've just been encouraged by that recently because um, when we're getting people into the kingdom, there is no determined timeline. Well, it's going to take about five years. When you were leading worship, I met him about 10 years ago when I got married to my wife. And if I remember right, you were kind of like, I'm not sure about the gifts of the Spirit. I'm not sure about, you know, praying in tongues and all that stuff. And now 10 years later, he's like leading it, you know? And I know he's had his own. So anyway, God has been, God has been long-suffering. So I just want to say mercy and compassion for those around you that are Christians or not Christians. And God is just challenging us saying, pray for, like, pray for them. Not just the sign on the wall, not just your sticky note in the bathroom, pray for that person. Actually experience God's heart for them and get tears in your eyes for them. So when you're interacting and they start getting angry at you, I feel compassion for you. I feel mercy. No, you, yeah. There's a slowness to anger. Slowness to anger. And I feel like God is saying that's, that's your way. If you've been realizing that, that you're quick to get angry at certain people right now, God is saying pray for them and get my heart for them so that you're slow to, you're slow to anger. You guys know who else is slow to anger, right? God, that's Christ-likeness. We connect to God's heart and friendship. So we get all those things, but then we get ideas. And we get boldness uh, uh, to share the gospel with them. We get ideas of how to love them and serve them and encourage them. Ideas on how to get into their lives. Maybe it's a neighbor and you don't, you don't really interact with them. You will get ideas when you're actually praying. <clears throat> I 
Okay. Next thing I want to talk about is, is what to pray for. <clears throat> it's not limited to this, but just it's just fun. Two things to, to focus on in praying for the lost is, um, number one is for yourself, that you would have power from God to do miracles and that you'd have boldness. So there's a, there's a me focus when we're praying for the lost. God, I need boldness. I get timid. I get scared. I get uh, ashamed of the gospel. Give me boldness and give me power that, that I would see healings and miracles and I would be prophesying and that would be part of what accompanies the sharing of the gospel. Okay, so there's a, there's a you focus in praying. And then there's a second focus is for those, the, the other people. God wants us to pray for open doors and open hearts. So those are kind of like two different focuses that I think of when we pray for the lost. <clears throat> Ephesians 6.19. There's a, that Ephesians again. Um, Paul says, pray for me. Okay, so this is the Apostle Paul. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me. Ephesians 6.19. Pray for me that utterance may be given to me. And that I may open my mouth boldly. Paul, don't you always do that? No. Would you pray for me as the Apostle Paul, the most significant writer of the New Testament? Would you pray for me to have boldness to share the gospel? <laughs> Anybody else need prayer for boldness? Okay, you're in good company. Okay, I know he was bold. I don't think he was asking like in humility of like, oh, just make them feel better. Like pray for me for boldness. He actually needed that. And also when you're preaching the gospel, the enemy hates that. And so sometimes there can just be that barrage um, of accusation and just demonic attack to discourage you or to make you timid or whatever. And so um, there really is just a praying to be bold. Acts 4, 29 and 30. The early church prayed for boldness. It says, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. And by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders will be done. Ephesians 4, there's a, I'm sorry, Acts 4, there's a powerful prayer. And they actually pray, God, stretch out your hand and give us boldness to speak the gospel clearly and without fear or shame. And then stretch out your hand to give healings and signs and wonders um, in the name of Jesus. So there's both. There's that boldness and there's that power that they were praying for. And I'm going to end with that story. Um, in a, in a few minutes here. Okay, so that's there. Then they, they prayed for open doors and open hearts. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. There's more verses on this, but just a reference point. 1 Corinthians 16, 9, it says, For a great and effective door has been opened to me, but there are many adversaries, both humans and also demonic. Well, Paul says this, There's a great and effective door that's been opened to me. And I just want to lay it before us that great and effective doors are open in the place of prayer and fasting and interacting with God and letting him open doors for us to bring the gospel in. And an open door means opportunity. An open door means receptivity as well. Not everybody, because he had adversaries at the same time, but um, that there's open doors there. Colossians 4.3, he says the same thing. Meanwhile, pray also for us that God would open a door to us for the word that we might speak, we might speak about Jesus to other people. Pray for us that these doors will be open to us. 
in a couple of spots, he actually says the door isn't opened and we're not, we didn't do well there or we're not going there. He says Satan's actually like blocking, blocking that way. And so he'd actually would go to a different city or he would say, pray for us. And so it's interesting that there's like, uh, Paul was aware of when there were open doors for the gospel in a city and when there wasn't. Um, I've kind of been saying this, but practically speaking, um, I know these are simple, but just praying for the uh, people in your life that you don't know if they know Jesus yet, or, or maybe you know um, where they're at. Befriend them and serve them, and then just be in that place and discerning when you can bring up um, the, the truth about who Jesus is. Okay, I want to end with this idea of praying in community with one another. Um, I'm all about praying together with other people. Most of my prayer life for 20 years has been in group settings and even doing my alone times of prayer, not alone, like doing it with other people. Um, and I'm an introvert, so kind of contrary to what you think. Um, but in context to like praying for the lost is we can do it alone at our houses and you can target that one person in your life, but but there's a lot of power in doing it together and praying for your loved ones, but doing it together. And I've had groups like that where we had, we had one or two people we were praying for um, per person, and there's like three or four of us guys, and we would pray together for our loved ones by name. Um, and there's so much strength in doing that. So I want to encourage that because I know you have prayer nights, and I know that you guys pray in other settings as well. Um, but to be encouraged in that, but also to be open, God, do you want us to do this more? And how can we give ourselves to praying to, together more often? Um, praying together brings you all in deeper friendship with one another. And that's what God is after right now. Because in John 17, there's a promise. Jesus prays and says, he goes, Father, I want them, I want you all to be one with each other to the same level that Jesus, Father, and Holy Spirit are one together, you know? And if you have any, <laughs> if you have any sense, you'd go, oh, we're not there yet, you know? Not to be discouraged by it, but just go, wow, we're at like level one on a scale of 100. <laughs> um, but I'm not saying that to be like discouragement, but just like, wow, there's actually a lot of like room for us to grow in. And it says, if they are one as we are one, then people will know that Jesus is the Son of God. And so the unity of churches in friendship, not just the gathering on Sundays, but your friendship with one another through the week and your bonds together and your accountability and praying for one another. Um, at our church, we're just opening up the ceiling and going, we want to go in that direction. And um, I don't know where we're at <laughs> in that direction, but we're going in that direction. And God is saying, if you do that, that is somehow going to show the loss that Jesus is real. And so when we pray together, there's like these divine uh, bonds that link us together. And what's happening is that, you know, if there's 40 of us in a room together, that we start connecting to God and we all start getting his thoughts and his emotions and his ideas and his strategies and his faith enters us in the same moments, the same experiences that knits us together in so many different ways. And if we do that for like 10 years, 
the bond just keeps increasing. And if we have meals together, and if we confess our sins to one another and meet together in Bible studies and, and share life together, that bond increases. And so there's just a strengthening together that God wants to do. So praying together is a massive way of doing that. Praying together strengthens our faith. Praying together uh, helps us to persevere in prayer when we don't see anything happening. And then prayer, praying together does impact angels, angels and demons even more than one person praying. When you pray together, there's actually more power happening with angels and demons. So I believe that, that um, group prayer or corporate prayer is going to become like this massive thrust in the church all over the earth in the coming days. Let's turn to Acts 4 as I end. You guys got a few more minutes in you? Are you being honest? <laughs> Acts chapter 4. I got my clock on me. I know. Acts chapter 4. <clears throat> um, we never want to be religious and thinking that we've arrived in something. I've arrived with the fullness of what God says unity is in my church. No, that's religious. Don't think that way. <laughs> I've arrived at what it is to be a person of prayer. Don't think that way. I've been in it as a full-time occupation for almost 20 years, and I'm just going, I feel like I'm an infant in this topic of prayer. That there's just, we just got to rip the ceiling off and say, I know a lot of things, but there's a lot more for me to know. And even to be honest with ourselves and say, I know a lot of things, but am I walking in the things that I know? Or have I, have I regressed in these things thinking that I am something different? So, um, Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> Acts chapter 4, um, I preached on this recently, so I just am loving, I've loved these two chapters for a long time, Acts 4 and 5, but Acts chapter 4, verse 23 And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to highlight um, them praying together and then highlight their community life. And then I'll let you read Acts chapter 5 for more details. Um, what's happening is that uh, Peter and John got arrested and they got threatened and a little bit persecuted for preaching about Jesus in Jerusalem. And so now in this story, they're coming back to their friends. And in my version, it says they're companions. And that word has like a very affectionate term to it. It didn't just say, I came back to my church. It said, I came back to my, my companions, my loved ones, the ones that I have affection for and they have affection for me. And we have understanding and union and we have commitment towards one another. Peter and John came back to that group. Verse 23, it says, being let go, they went to their own companions and they reported all that the chief priests and elders had said. And so when they heard that, when the group heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. <clears throat> and they're going to pray in just a second. I want to highlight this, is that they came back, Peter and John came back, and they prayed with people they had deep friendships with and deep commitment to. And what we don't have the full details in the story, so I'm kind of like, I'm kind of pondering <laughs> what that looks like. But it's one of you coming in here with a stirring story 
and we jump into the spirit of prayer with you right there? Like, did they have to stop and go, okay, Peter and John, let's pray for that right now. Or was there such friendship with one another and unity in the spirit that Peter and John sharing was sparking things in the people in the room and they go, they just start praying with one accord. And probably they had prayed together and they had gotten that unity in prayer before. And so that when the moment of crisis comes, they have a history in united prayer and they jump right into it. You following me? Their unity and friendship, their season of preparation and friendship and their season of preparation and prayer prepared them for the moment of crisis. And in Acts chapter 4, it's a moment of glory as well. So in this passage, it says this. So when they heard the testimony, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And this, these little phrases, their voice to God and with one accord, um, it actually means one voice, not multiple voices. It's saying one voice. Let's just say there's 30 of them in the room, because I don't really know. There's 30 of them, and they, they turned into one voice before God. And in Acts chapter 1 and 2, for those of you that are tracking with me, Acts chapter 1 and 2, they got the outpouring of the Spirit, and what was happening is that they were praying with one accord. They were praying with, with unity in Acts chapter 1 and 2, but Acts chapter 4 was more unity. They prayed together in unity in Acts chapter 1 and 2, and they got the outpouring of the Spirit, okay? In Acts chapter 4, they became one voice in the place of intercession. And we see the power of that manifesting in the story. So they pray, and then verse, um, verse 29, it says, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal that signs and wonders may be done. And then verse 31, we get this really quick response, which this is what we want. Verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. Didn't take very long. <laughs> there is an anointing. There's a breakthrough in the place of prayer when you do it together. But when you have a history of friendships with the people that you're praying with, this is what God wants to prepare in Valley View. He wants you to pursue friendships the life group thing after church is the wisdom of God. And I don't even know, you know, I just assume all the amazing things that's happening. So as simple as that is, just meeting and eating and talking um, is the, the wisest thing that you all can be doing as well as growing in intimacy with God. It's the wisest thing. I'm being serious. You're getting a history together and then growing and praying together. It can be so weak and broken and not even feeling God's presence, don't even worry about that stuff. You're getting a history, and there, God's going to answer prayers, but there are future moments that God is also building you up for as a family. Okay, so they pray, and when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That's amazing. There's boldness. There's God's manifest power is shaking an actual building. And they were filled with the Spirit, okay? They had already been filled with the Spirit. They got something more together. And I, I personally believe it was bigger than Acts chapter 2. I think Acts chapter 2 got them desperate for something more. And in Acts chapter 4, they got something more. 
I'm getting a little Pentecostal here, sorry. Anyway, where's my handkerchief? So, I just want to emphasize what's happening in this place. And they're going out with boldness in verse 32. It says, Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Okay, now he's going to say that basically people start selling houses and land to support the influx of new Christians living in Jerusalem. Peter and John weren't from Jerusalem. I don't know if any of Jesus' apostles were from Jerusalem. They were from the northern part of the country. They're moving down to Jerusalem and making that their home base. Their families, other people are getting saved. Uh, You know, if you were a new believer in Jerusalem, that's a Jewish city, can you imagine how that might affect your businesses? And relationships, you know, family relationships getting torn by people getting saved and then people staying within their Jewish faith. And so you have a lot of economic need in the early church, um, as well as funding, you know, all these ministries of the apostles. And so people are selling houses and selling land. That's a big deal. That's not us having a crockpot meal after church and like, you know, we're sharing all things together. It's like, you know, my house is worth, I don't know, $250,000 in South Dakota. If I sold that and I brought the money and said, hey, guys, do like what is needed in the congregation. And then someone else here has land, and you go sell that land, and you bring the proceeds um, for the corporate benefit. That's, that's a sacrificial community, all right? That's not like just one good offering. That's like you count the cost on that one, you know? Um, and so that's what's happening. And so there's, again, another, another fruit of their community life. He said, hey, guys, I'm willing to sell my house um, to fund what's happening right now, and I don't know what that means for me, you know. I'm not advocating we all move to the same property, <laughs> but just, that's like really intense what they're doing. But it's connected to, their, to what happened in their prayer meetings. They got breakthroughs, and they, they see people getting saved, um, and there was like real community things going on. So verse 34, it says, All those who were possessors of lands or houses, they sold them, and they brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid him at the feet of the apostles. Um, I'm technically done, so I'm going to end with this. In Acts chapter 5, um, it's the greatest display of power since the days of Jesus, in my opinion. It says that in Jerusalem, people were gathering from the surrounding villages and towns, and they were bringing their demonized family members. They were bringing lame, paralyzed, diseased people. And it said that so many testimonies had gone out of the power that was manifesting, that they thought, if Peter even walks close to me, I'm going to get healed or delivered, you know? So that just means that the stories were getting out, and they were getting out far enough that people from other villages were coming in and saying, you know what? Grandma isn't light, but we're going to get her on the stretcher, and we're going to carry her into Jerusalem, or whatever carts they had. I don't actually know. So they bring them in going, we're hearing the stories. This sounds like the days of Jesus just a couple years earlier, and we're desperate to see this. So I just always imagine that, that there's 500 people surrounding a building like this because they've heard the stories. And there's demonized people. Whoever, who's ever seen like, well, I wouldn't even ask that question. In the stories of the gospel, the demonized situations are like fairly um, demonstrative. And... Um, 
where there's like aggressive behavior and violence and all kinds of stuff. So I'm just imagining 250 kids where their parents are just desperate and the kids are desperate and there's just like critical issues going on and they're bringing them all to one location around uh, the apostles. And then you have a bunch of lame, paralyzed people, maybe people on their deathbeds coming in and you got a pretty motley crew right there. And it says that every single one of them gets healed and delivered. Okay? That, that's the power that they touched. And it says that there is such a fear of the Lord in that city, a sobriety of, do I say yes to Jesus? Do I not? There's such a sobriety because of the power demonstrations. Um, it says that people dared not enter in, but then the next verse says, but they were, the multitudes were coming in. And there was a holiness about this. And that was the power that they carried because of their John 17 friendships and their history of praying together for the lost. They see thousands getting saved, but it's, it's under the umbrella of the fear of the Lord and signs and wonders. And people are coming in and going, yeah, I'm going to try this Jesus thing. It was people going, I'm going to try this Jesus thing, like a serious choice on the inside. Um, and anyway... In Acts chapter 5, you know, there's two people that die, right? It's kind of a crazy story. Acts chapter 5, it's Ananias and Sapphira. It's a husband and wife. They die, and it's a crazy story. Um, but what happens is they sell some of their property <clears throat> because other people were, and they bring the money to Peter, and they say, hey, this is the money from our property. And Peter goes, is that everything? And they go, yeah, that's everything. And God had told Peter it wasn't everything. And so they made the decision to lie and not be transparent in their community. And Peter goes, you could have kept the money back, but just you weren't honest. That's the bigger deal. The big deal wasn't that they held money back. The big deal was they lied. Peter goes, it was yours. You could have given $5. Totally up to you. It's the honesty thing that I care about. And so what I want to highlight as we end is... Um, is that they, they um, transgressed the holy transparency of a church community, and that's where, that's where the um, instant um, discipline of the Lord happened. And what's crazy is that right before they do that, it says Satan enters into their heart. You know? And so I preached this recently in my church. Satan couldn't stop their prayer meetings. Satan couldn't stop their power. And so he's going around like a, a lion going, how do I stop all this stuff? Let me disrupt their community life with a little lie that would never affect anybody. And that's how Satan tries to creep in is he tries to get the foundation of community and with a little white lie, and they still gave the money. And he goes, let me enter in in that way. And so we need to be sober and, and growing in transparency and honesty and um, because Satan wants to enter in and break the foundation of our friendships as a church, your friendships as a church, because it starts tearing down your authority in the place of pray, praying for the lost.